Hello, today is Wednesday, September 6th, and welcome to episode 248 of Fault Lines as we continue our Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. I'm excited to be here today with Republican presidential candidate Will Hurd. Before announcing his campaign, Mr. Hurd served three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives for Texas's 23rd Congressional District and worked with OpenAI as a board member. Prior to running for Congress, Mr. Hurd was a CIA operations officer for nine years and served as a senior advisor to Fusion X, a cybersecurity firm. Mr. Hurd, thanks for joining us on Fault Lines. Hey, Lester, appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to the conversation. Great. So uh, you've had, an, in addition to running for president, you've had an amazing career uh, in the CIA and in Congress, among other things. And I wanted to kind of, before we get deep into the current issues of the day, kind of ask you some historical questions. So you were you were at the agency in the early 2000s. Can you talk about the extent to which you dealt with artificial intelligence issues at that time in our national security infrastructure. So AI specifically never didn't come up early on in my career. I, I would talk about it more broadly about how intelligence services were using technology in order to find out who we were and who our assets were or how we would be able to use and leverage technology um, to do our jobs better. And, and just for some context, right? Google Maps didn't exist when I started my career. And so when you're doing a surveillance detection route, this is going out and um, determining whether or not you have surveillance on you before you go meet someone who's giving you secrets. We would have to go make maps ourselves. Because in some of these places, you didn't have it. So AI specifically, I can't remember um, at the early parts of, of my career, but the broader threat to technology absolutely um, was an issue. When it came to, um, you know, biometrics was probably the closest because, look, I had, I had a number of aliases. So that means you're cr crossing international borders under a different name. And so some of the early, um, the early issues was on biometrics, specifically uh, facial recognition and, and fingerprints that kind of impacted the ability conduct, con to conduct intelligence operations. I, I feel like there's like a thousand questions I could ask about what you just said, but let's, let's fast forward a little bit to your time in Congress, uh, 2015 to 2021. How did you, did, did AI issues come up then? That was before chat GPT was sure. really rolled out. Can you, can you talk about kind of that period of your yeah. career and whether, whether you face these issues? Well, I was the first one to hold a hearing on artificial intelligence in all of Congress in 2015, which thinking about it now, it's pretty crazy. I was the first. And, and how did that come up? Jason Chaffetz was the chair of the Oversight and Government Affairs Committee. And when I first won the election in 2014, he had called me and asked me to come be a subcommittee chair. And when he called, I didn't have the, I didn't have the, um, what's the appropriate word? Uh, I, I felt bad to tell him no over the phone. I was going to probably send him a text. And then the guy who was going to be my chief of staff was like, no, a freshman getting a, a chair of a subcommittee, that's a big deal. You're going to take it. <laughs> and he wanted to create a committee on technology. And our job was to look at privacy, cybersecurity, and emerging technology. And, and that's really where my focus, so my degree is in computer science. 
And, and so these issues are something I've been dealing with ever since I was in high school. I worked at a, a company called Southwest Research. I, I interned. I didn't work. That's the big difference, right? Like, I, I don't know if there's anything I did at my time there uh, that was that was very valuable to the firm. Um, but but being exposed to robotics and all that when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. So that kind of started my arc. But it, But in Congress, the first hearing, I remember it like it was yesterday because I was excited. I thought we were going to be talking about how long is it going to be for me to be barreling down Interstate 10 in my driverless car and have a drone come drop Waterburger through my sunroof, right? Waterburger is a is a chain here in South Texas. Actually, it's a lot of places other than just Texas. And it ended up turning into a conversation about are we going to have drones peeping in our windows, right? And I remember thinking I'm like we're not worried about the UPS driver or the FedEx guy peeping in the window. And to keep that amount of data on a server, it would just be impossible. And so you saw early on kind of the fears of this. But I would also say that from that hearing eight years later, I would have thought that uh, use of drones would be a little bit more ubiquitous than it is today. Look, it's even hard to like try to go out and buy a commercial drone now uh, with all these issues. So, so th that that's kind of that was the beginning. And I remember before that hearing, I did it. So, so we had that hearing, and then I did another series on AI. And I went out around the Capitol complex and just grabbed people and said, "What is what's what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say AI, artificial intelligence?" Right? And it was wild. It was. If people were younger than me, they would say Ava, the femme robot that killed somebody in the movie, or people would say Hal 5000 or yeah. 10,000 yeah. if they were older than me, right? And and so what's fascinating though, you know, even 8 years later, um, those are some of the same issues people bring up when you when you ask them what does AI mean to you? After you left Congress, you were on the board of OpenAI, which mm -hmm. of course is uh, very directly related to artificial intelligence. Can you can you talk about what you saw while you were on the board of that company? And I guess you had to step down for your presidential run, um, but just interested in, in kind of your perspective from the private sector most sure. recently. Um, I saw a handful of individuals create something that's pretty amazing and do it in a way that nobody thought was possible. And, 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 seeing how innovation is moving so fast, how this topic is moving so fast. I thought I had an understanding of advanced technologies like AI. I didn't realize how little I actually knew going into a place that's working on it. And and then I also saw, look, when we released ChatGPT, and, and, and the CEO has talked about this, it was a pretty low-key release on, on November 30th. And part of it was, hey, we have this thing. It needs, it, it needs to be out in the wild and see how it really performs. And it was low-key because we had been working on other issues and didn't think it was all that interesting. And, and then the world changed. And that was a moment. Uh, the release of ChatGPT in, will, will be a moment in the timeline of AI uh, for the rest of history. And so what was fascinating for me is, 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 is being involved in, in at, you know, looking at some of the strategic issues on a technology that I equate with nuclear fission. Nuclear fission controlled 
gives you nuclear power, clean, efficient, can power the world. Nuclear fission uncontrolled gives you nuclear weapons, which can destroy the world. And, and, and I think artificial intelligence and more specifically artificial general intelligence, um, you know, has that same level, uh, has that same level of power. All right. So let me ask you, uh, based on that answer, how do we control AI? Should we control it? How do we control it? Is it yeah. the government? Is it the market? Is it some combination thereof? What's the, what's, how would you as president, uh, take steps to control AI? Yeah. Um, look, so first step is, yeah, it's, it's a mix of government and, and, and industry. And I think the government step one, AI needs to follow the law. Let's not carve it out. We saw the, the errors in carving out social media. We know now several, uh, you know, what, 25, maybe 30 years later, um, not that long, 20 years, um, that social media has led to young girls increasing self-harm and cutting themselves. We have seen it's led to an increase in hateful rhetoric. All of these things were you don't see as much in radio and television, right? Because there is the, the Communications and Decency Act. So carving social media out of the Communication Decency Act was a wrong move. Um, why do we have a cybersecurity industry? We have a cybersecurity industry because we carved out software from product liability. And so hmm. let's not make those mistakes with AI. So it follows the law. We have a lot of rules on, on civil liberties, protecting civil liberties and civil rights. AI has to follow that, period, full stop. The second thing, really powerful AI should need a permit. Now, we can have some debates about what really powerful AI is. Um, I can make an argument that we haven't seen the really powerful AI that I'm talking about that requires some kind of permit. Um, I don't care about um, Amazon's algorithm to provide me better socks or T-shirts based on you know, my previous purchases. And, and yes, I do buy my socks online. Um, <laughs> And, and so, so, but if you and I, Lester, wanted to go build a parking, parking lot, guess what? We would need a couple permits to do that. So really yeah. powerful AI should have that. And that permit should be coming in weeks. It shouldn't be a year long process. And, and, and NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology should be, it has the capabilities to evaluate, to make sure when they look under the hood, before the before this powerful AI gets out into the wild and is involved in being able to access the public, that somebody is making sure that we're doing red teaming of it, that we're looking at the models, uh, the the machine learning models appropriately, all those kinds of things. That's that's the second thing. Third thing, government needs to use this stuff. It shouldn't take months for a veteran to get an appointment with the VA. It should take minutes. It shouldn't take months for someone to get a passport renewed. It should take minutes. So the government should do a sprint to be using these tools in the government when it comes to, to consumer or, or constituent facing services. And then the fourth thing I would do in kind of the herd administration plan on how to tackle AI is make sure every student has an AI tutor. The tools exist today for a kid or, you know, a, a seventh grader learning trigonometry to have an infinitely patient tutor that teaches you how to fish rather than gives you a fish. It's, we have the technology for a 30 year old who wants to change industries and maybe become an electrician um, to have, an, have a tutor that can help you pass those tests. Anybody should be able to have access to that. And those are, those are four things that I think is how we begin, and that's just the beginning, how we begin 
to to ensure we take advantage of technologies like AI before it takes advantage of us. Now, there's a lot of other issues like national privacy law and all those kinds of things that I think should happen. We, I think everything that happens on the Internet is something that, you know, anything I do in my digital life, I control. It is mine. I get to decide how to do it. Now, that's not how this, how any of these systems are set up. These are, these are much broader topics, but those four things I outlined has overwhelming support, can be done immediately, and would have a long, go a long way in making sure the trajectory of this stuff is, is appropriate. Uh, let, let me ask you a very uh, niche question. Uh, I taught a graduate level class last semester on, on Congress and foreign policy, and every single student use chat GPT to help with their final paper. Sure. Do you, do you think that's a good idea or should we be, should in our educational system, should we be pushing students to, to rely more on themselves or, or should they, should it be okay for them to use a tool like chat GPT? Do you have those people writing papers without using the internet? Do you make them go into the, into the library and pull out books? If there's math problems, are they allowed to use a calculator or do they have to do long division? Right. And so this is a tool. It's here. And the quicker and the faster people use it and, and, and learn how to deal with it, the more successful. And and there's going to be a broader, you know, we always talk about the 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 technological gap or the 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 fact that people don't have um, access to the Internet or devices. But this is another one that we're going to have to make sure people have access and should be using it. The question should be, Lester. You got to start asking them to, to you got to start having them answer tougher questions because now you know doing basic research shouldn't take that long you know I, look I, I tried to, I explained to some students recently I always ask folks if they know what the card catalog is and a lot of people are like uh I don't know what that is well back in the day when I was in like middle school and high school and you had to check out books from the library and it was like that one book and you would go to the librarian and be like, listen, don't let Brett Shemansky uh, <laughs> extend that book because I need it, right? We don't have to do that anymore. So the questions we were getting asked then should have been pretty basic, right? Because we had to go out and get the information. So now, so, so I think what AI has the ability to do is to help us push us up this kind of this, this you know, improve our knowledge gap and push us up the the stack to, to higher order things. And and now when we look at, you know, in 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 synthetic biology or in medicine, the fact that we're able to decide what a protein mo a, a, a chemical bond looks like, and that's gonna help us provide a better medicines in a quicker fashion, this is where we should be moving to. So that starts with, yeah, this is a tool, use it, but, but ask, ask way tougher questions, right? So that you're showing that you're only using it as a tool, not as a replacement. I, I love that answer. Um, all right, let me ask you uh, quickly, and it was a huge topic about competition with China mm. and AI. What are, what are the US's strategic advantages? What are China's advantages? How should we be thinking about this geopolitical challenge uh, with respect to artificial intelligence? Um, it, it was fascinating. I was in New Hampshire and somebody asked me this question and they said, well, Will, are, are you afraid with some of the things you're proposing that you're going to allow the Chinese government to have, you know, get a leg up? I'm like, the Chinese government 
sees AI as a threat to themselves because this, you know, something that's going to give people more power and make them smarter and understand things more. Like, look, this is why all the Chinese development in this area is going to ultimately be controlled by the state. Uh, There are no large language models that are being developed in the U.S. federal government. It's all the companies outside that are doing that. So the ultimate strategic advantage for the United States is that all the programs that we're developing are free, open, and fair. Now, the uh, the the leg up that the Chinese government has is they don't care about privacy or civil liberties. Why do we think the TikTok algorithm is really good? Because it's probably been trained on way more data than anything any European or American company has ever been able to do, and and so so that's that's kind of the difference. But the the Chinese government's going to always want to control it, and so the United States we need to be making sure we're working with our with our with our allies on this. Um, the U.S. and Europe needs to drop this beef on privacy. Our, our two entities agree more on privacy than Europe and China does. Then we that's what China. Um, you know, we can't let the European regulation on AI uh, become similar to what GDPR was. The difference is GDPR almost became a global standard because um, all of these Europe, all these American companies were already having operations in Europe. AI is so is still is still growing that um, a lot of companies may just be like, OK, whatever, we're not going to do stuff in Europe. So for me, um if we're going to deal with an adversary that doesn't care about civil rights and civil liberties, uh, we need to be working with our allies on this. Have you given any thought to uh, how the the rapid development of quantum computing could impact AI and what we, we might need to be doing in anticipation of that? Sure. So, so um, getting to artificial general intelligence, which is AGI is an algorithm that's smarter than most people on most economically viable work. That's kind of, let's call that the, that's what's gonna begin this singularity or this this moment in time. You do not need quantum computers to get to that point. Hmm. Now, you need a really humongous processing power that requires a lot of electricity to get to that point, but you don't need quantum. However, quantum, quantum computing could potentially get us there quicker if it comes around. And so I think there's some debates as does, does AGI and quantum develop almost at the same time? And, and so I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And so, but, but these, these are two things that are interconnected and, and the biggest concern right now on quantum is um, in making sure we have quantum resilient encryption across all of our important industries and, and services. Um, I, I, I also remind uh, young folks, I always talk about Y2K, and most people don't know what Y2K is. And, and I remind them that the U.S. government spent $4 billion. There was a special committee in the Senate on Y2K. They spent $4 billion in three years getting all of the software in use in the government and critical industries to change the year from two digits to four digits. 4B, right? That's crazy. Moving to quantum resilient encryption is a significantly harder task. And what's fascinating is so many people don't even understand what that is and just focus on that. 
So, so that is that to me um, is the ability of our adversaries to disrupt our financial systems, our telecommunication systems, our intelligence systems. Uh, that's that's the biggest concern right now that we need to be preparing for. Uh, but but there is a long term, in my opinion, a you're going to see wherever we at with wherever we are in AI when quantum computing becomes a real thing, you're going to see an even bigger exponential growth in the capabilities of AI uh, because of that. Uh, final question. Um, I know you're out there on the campaign trail a lot of these days talking to Iowans and folks from New Hampshire. What what are what are the concerns of average Americans about AI as as you've picked up in the sure. last few weeks? Look, I, I get asked three questions everywhere I go. Some question about Ukraine and, and most of it's like how do we prevent that from becoming a forever war? I get a question about I get a question about China and, and really it's like, you know, how do we make sure we don't get surpassed by them? And the third question I get I get always get a question about AI. And usually it's because sixty five percent of Americans think AI or a robot is gonna take their job. And and so how the question is about how is this going to impact my industry and what do I do and what do, what do my kids and my grandkids need to do to be ready for a world that's going to look very different in a couple of years because of this powerful tool. And, and this is actually one of the reasons why I'm running. Look, I'm a dark horse candidate. I recognize that. But when it comes to this new Cold War we're, we're in with the Chinese government, when it comes to making sure we're taking advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us, when it comes to the fact that our kids have the worst grades in math, science, and reading that they've had in, in this century. Um, these are all major issues that are going to affect the, our quality of life, and it's going to affect whether America can do for the next 247 years what, they, what we have done for the last 247 years, and that's create a quality of life that's an envy for the world. And so, so this is a real thing. I get asked that question about, should my kid be using chat GPT to do their homework? Um, and then I have business leaders coming up to me and saying, hey, how can I be, what should I be doing um, in order to make sure I grow my business? So it's it, it's exciting to me. And, and this is why I'm in the race. And, and I hope um, some of the folks that are listening to this podcast, you know, believe that we need a candidate like this and go to herdforamerica.com. That's H-U-R-D um, and, and get involved in this movement. Mr. Hurd, thanks for being with us. And we wish you the very best on the campaign trail. Thank you, Les, and thanks for highlighting these important issues. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thanks so much to Mr. Hurd for joining us, and thanks to Tatum Clifton, Aidan Pascoe, Claude Jennings, and the NSI staff for their help in producing today's episode. Fault Lines is now on YouTube, so be sure to check out our channel for a video of today's episode and to catch up on past episodes. If you liked what you heard and saw, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share with your friends and family. 